Today we pick up our journey of uh, preaching through the Bible by picking up the uh, story of 1 Samuel. It's been a few weeks since we have uh, been in this book. We've taken a break from it uh, during the Christmas uh, season. And as we get back into it, it would be helpful for us to remember uh, how this entire book can be summarized. We can summarize the message of 1 Samuel by saying it this way, from the chaos of self-rule uh, to the king after God's own heart. From the chaos of self-rule uh, to the king after God's own heart. Uh, the part where we pick up today is right where the book begins to reveal what happens when people do what seems best in their own eyes. They despise and honor and dishonor God. They despise and dishonor God. And this happens not merely with a, with a people at large, as we have seen in the book of Judges uh, earlier last year when Pastor Taylor preached the book of Judges. Uh, but today's passage actually shows us that the people who do what's best in their own eyes, the people who despise the Lord and dishonor God, are the very spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. Uh, so this morning, I invite you to open the God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 12 to verse 36. First uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 to verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 226. Here is God's Word for us this morning. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all, the, all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, 
It is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Is the darkness and the corruption that invaded the spiritual leaders of Israel. Uh, this book started with the story of Hannah a barren wife who turned to God in her distress. She asked God for a male child, and she promised to give that child to God. And the Lord answered Hannah's prayer by giving her the boy Samuel. And on the day that Hannah brought Samuel to the Lord, to the temple, Hannah sang a song of praise, which is found at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, which we preached on a few weeks back before Christmas. In that song, Hannah praised God for the victory that God gave Hannah in her life, but also Hannah praised God and warned the proud not to be secure in their prideful ways because God is a God who can bring down the mighty and the proud. And in Israel's case... Uh, they may have thought that the mighty and the proud were the Philistines 
who were attacking uh, the people, always threatening them. But in, in this case, the first ones that fit in the category of the mighty and the proud were Israel's leaders, Israel's priests, the spiritual leaders of the people. And as we look at how their sin gets exposed in this chapter, we notice several times we see the, uh, the reappearance of, of the boy Samuel. He's growing and ministering in the presence of the Lord. It's as if the author wants to uh, put a contrast before our eyes of the existing uh, spiritual leaders of the people of Israel who were mighty and in control of everything and their corruption and the corrupted ways. And then this boy, Samuel, who is growing up. Perhaps nobody paid attention to him. But here's a contrast between those who are in charge, those who are powerful in the, in the spiritual realm, and this, and this little being, a little boy. Nobody pays attention to him. This chapter is supposed to create a contrast for us between the leaders of Israel who despised and dishonored God, and we'll see God's solution uh, at the end of the chapter. But let's look at this story of how God exposes uh, the sin and the corruption of the spiritual leaders of, of God's people. This story can be divided up in, in four headings. And if you like taking notes, here are the four headings of the, of the unfolding of the passage that we have just read. The priests despise God. The priests despise God. Second heading, rebuke comes too lightly and too late. Rebuke comes too lightly and too late. Number three, the head priest dishonors God. The head priest dishonors God. Number four, the final point, God's solution is judgment and replacement. God's solution is judgment and replacement. Let's look at each of these as, as a story unfolds for us this morning. The priests despise God. The first scene as Hannah left the boy Samuel to the temple to minister in the presence of the Lord. Uh, after Hannah sung the song, she and, and her husband Elkanah left. And the very next scene that we are told after Hannah brought this act of devotion to the Lord by giving her first son, at that point her only son, to God, the very next, po the very next scene in the unfolding of the book of 1 Samuel is to tell us the environment into which Hannah left the little boy Samuel. You would think it would be a a godly environment at the temple, at the tabernacle of the Lord, around the priests of the Lord, that he would be closer to the Lord, ministering to the people and learning from the priests. But what we find out is that the very ones who are supposed to lead God's people into godliness are actually despising the Lord. Eli and his sons are introduced in, the, in, chapter, in verse 12 as worthless men, as worthless men. When Hannah prayed to the Lord at the doorposts of the temple in a chapter earlier, when she was in her deep distress and went to the house of the Lord to bring her deep distress to the Lord, she was so, she was so emotional that Eli thought she was drunk. 
And she, Eli rebuked her and told her to, to, to get rid of the bottle, to go home and get, get rid of the drunkenness. But, but Hannah responded to Eli and said, uh, My Lord, I am not a worthless woman. The same word. Now we see who truly is worthless. It's Eli's sons. And notice two specific um, acts that they did, how they despised the Lord. In verses 13 through 16, we are given two examples. The custom of the priest was to send their servants uh, to the boiling pots in which the Israelites would bring their meats to, to worship the Lord, to bring their offerings. And the servants of the priest would take from the, from the pots of, uh, of, of the meats and uh, whatever their fork would catch, uh, they, would, they would take it for the priests. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Well, in the law of Moses, God made specific provisions um, of what ha should happen when the worshipers, when the Israelites would bring animal sacrifices to the Lord, and which meats were to be given to the priests. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 3, it says, and this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest a shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. God designed the way that the priests should live off of the sacrifices that the worshipers of God would bring to the temple. But God gave specific instructions on how that should be done. But Eli's sons disregarded such commands about how to treat the animal sacrifices. Instead, they chose to go and get whatever random piece of meat their fork could stab in the, in the, in the pot. In a second example, the priest wanted to get the meat raw before the animal was first offered to God. God's instructions in the book of Leviticus, for example, in chapter 4, were that the fats of the animals were supposed to be burned first as an act of giving those portions first to God. Before the animal was divided up, the animal was supposed to be first burnt. It was a way of saying the first goes to God. The best goes to God. And then they were supposed to cut the animal and divide it up between the priests and the worshipers. But the priests, Eli's sons, wanted the meat before it was given to God first and foremost. They wanted the first part and the best part for themselves. As one commentator puts it, Eli's sons were taking their portion before serving Yahweh his portion. A blatant insult to the Lord and a very great sin. But it got even worse. If some of the worshipers knew the law of God and said, no, no, first it should be burned and then the priest can take from it whatever he wants. In other words, if the worshiper actually knew God's way and actually followed God's way and would correct the priest in doing it the right way, the priest's servant would say, no, give it to me. And if you don't give it to me, I'll take it by force. I look at verse 16. And if the man said to him, let him first burn the fat and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. 
Here the, the worshipers seem to actually know God's law more than the priests. Here the worshipers seem to be more willing to obey God's law more than the priests. Friends, we see here an example, a great example that should the spiritual leaders of, a, of any church go in a direction away from God's word, despising God's instructions, the people of God should still follow God's word and correct the leaders. The spiritual leaders of God's people are not above accountability to God's word. So I want to encourage you, uh, dear members of this congregation, if you see any of the elders or any of the spiritual leaders of this congregation go in a wrong direction, it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to follow the Lord and the word and correct the spiritual leaders. But even with this pushback from the people, the priests were persistent in getting their raw meat and were willing to use threats and even force to get their own ways. And the text tells us in verse 17 that in doing so, the priest treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Uh, other translations uh, say for this verse, the men despised the offering of the Lord. What does it mean to despise something? It means to treat it with lesser value, to regard it with lesser worth than what was intended to be. You see, in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices were one of the means by which a people expressed their worship of God and their worship to God. Uh, but the priest did not care about God's instructions for those sacrifices and treated those sacrifices as if they were primarily to feed the priests, as if they were primarily for their benefit. They forgot that the animal sacrifices were, first of all, for God and for the fellowship that God desired to have with his people. Bringing animal sacrifices to God in worship was a means by which a worshiper express their repentance of sin. Such sacrifices and offerings were also the means by which the worshiper expressed one's devotion to God. They also expressed one's fellowship with God. But because these priests forgot how God intended these sacrifices to be, to be used, they actually changed the value of those sacrifices. These sacrifices were primarily viewed as their means of income. They devalued the sacrifices from what God had intended them to be. They pushed God out of the picture and disconsidered what the offerings of the Lord were truly about. So they despised the offerings of the Lord. There was no care among the priests of whether or not the worshipers brought these sacrifices rightly. They were not concerned about that. All they were concerned about was to make sure that they take their portion first. How pitiful. To despise the offering of the Lord is to devalue them. And this was a big sin. Verse 17 says, The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Friends, what does it mean for us today to despise the Lord? How can we uh, be careful not to follow in the same kind of pattern of sin, even though we no longer have animal sacrifices today? Are there ways in which 
their, the pattern of their sin can still be with us today, and how can we protect against it? Friends, this, to despise God means not to care about what He says in His Word, and just do what seems good to you, or do what you prefer. It means treating God's instructions and His Word either with intentional ignorance or with flat-out rebellion. It means putting yourself before God, putting your needs and your desires about what God, above what God said. Friends, what are, what are some ways in your life that you might be tempted to despise God in your life? Are there areas in which you openly ignore God's Word and God's ways, or you act against them? Think about it. Some people may treat even uh, our regular gatherings of God's people in corporate worship. Some people might treat even these with contempt by the fact that we might devalue them or think they are primarily about us or that we put our needs and desires and dreams above, above gathering regularly with God's people. To despise the Lord is to have small regard for the Lord. It means to care nothing about Him or about what He said. How sad that the spiritual leaders of God's people were the very ones who gave the, the tune of that attitude of despising the Lord. They said that they set the tone, they set the tempo for that national tragedy of, of the people of Israel despising the Lord. But let's look at the second point in the story of this, of this uh, narrative. The second point is rebuke comes too lightly and too late. The sins of Hophni and Phinehas went beyond their uh, corrupt worship. Uh, we find out in verse 22 that uh, they, their sins extended to sexual immorality. In the second scene, we find out that these priests were sleeping with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. How wicked. How wicked. These priests not only devalued the offerings of the Lord, but now they devalued the purity of the temple and the purity of the women serving at the temple. Friends, the path of despising God and His Word can take us to ignore any boundaries that God sets for us. In the case of Eli's sons, they have turned God's tabernacle, which was supposed to be the, the place of meeting, the meeting between God and His people, they have turned God's tabernacle into a brothel. It's important to notice the order of how these sins have been exposed. Their sexual immorality was not the root of their despising of God. It was rather the fruit of despising God and His Word. When you have small regard for God or no regard at all, you will ignore the boundaries that God sets for us, including in the area of sexual immorality. And notice Eli's rebuke of his sons. There's, there's something good in it, but there's something deeply missing as well. Let's look at the good part. And Eli said to them, verse 23 and 24, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear uh, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. 
If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, the good part in Eli's rebuke uh, is, is two important assumptions that he makes here. First, he assumes rightly that the sins of the sons of his sons have been against God, first and foremost. Yes, they have sinned against the worshipers and the servants who were at the temple by defiling them. Yes, they have sinned against the people of Israel, but Eli assumes rightly that his sons are acting wrongly against God himself. Friends, sin is an act against God himself. In this, Eli assumed correctly. Second, Eli is correct in asking the question, who will mediate in the wrong committed by men against God? We cannot undo our, by ourselves the wrongs we have done against God. We as humans are insufficient to mediate for ourselves before God. Eli was correct in recognizing that when we act wrongly against God, we cannot undo the wrong, nor can we cause God to reconcile with us. We need a mediator that would facilitate the reconciliation between God and us. Friends, if, if you're not a Christian, uh, this, this kernel of, of truth is, is an important part of the Christian message. It's part of recognizing that our rebellion and our desire to keep God out of the picture makes us enemies with God. When we despise God, when we disconsider Him, when we have no regard for Him, when we sin against Him, God becomes our enemy. And we need to be reconciled to a holy God, and we cannot do it by ourselves. But how can this reconciliation take place? We can only be reconciled if there is a mediator between us and God. It's not based on our good works. It's not based on how good we become. Our good intentions and our good works cannot cover our rebellion against God. Our good intentions cannot fix the rupture that has happened between us and God. The Christian message is that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the one who would mediate, the one who would reconcile us to God and would reconcile God to us. It is Jesus Christ through His life, through His death on the cross, and through His resurrection on the third day that has become, he has become the mediator between us and God so that all those who put their faith and trust in Christ, all those who repent from their sins and trust in Jesus will be reconciled to a holy God. Oh friend, if you've never repented from your sin or trusted in Christ for salvation, I want to plead with you today to recognize that the only way to be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. I encourage you to turn to him, believe on him, receive him submit to him if you'd like to know more about what that means we would love to talk to you at the end of the service or any time throughout the week just call one of the uh the church office and talk to one of the pastors we'd love to talk to you eli was correct to tell his sons that their sins created a rupture between them and god and a mediator was needed but even with with this good intention eli's rebuke was significantly deficient First of all, Eli was very superficial in his rebuke. He did not even identify the sins of his sons. He just kept it in very superficial language. I heard the report. 
that is being spread around. There's no mention of the sins specifically. It's interesting in, when, when God confronts Eli of his sin in verse uh, 29, God will be specific about the sins that God is confronting Eli. But Eli, Eli is not specific when he's confronting his sins about their sons. Sadly, not only is Eli's rebuke lacking specificity, Eli's rebuke also is lacking because it comes very late in the game. There's no indication in the passage that Eli rebuked his sons when he saw them begin going and veering off in a wrong direction. What we get instead is that Eli rebukes his sons pretty much when he's old, at the end of his life. And Eli's sons do not listen to the rebuke of their father. Listen to verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, this may puzzle us. It may seem, and it seems, that the rejection to listen to their father was the will of the Lord. Is that the impression you get? Yes, that's exactly the impression. It was the will of the Lord that at this point, when Eli brings a rebuke, that the sons of Eli would not listen. Why was it the will of the Lord? Because God intended to put them to death. You say, well, well that's not fair. Oh, friends, it's very fair. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. These sons of Eli have been sinning for many years. They have been going in their corrupt ways. The fact that God judged the sons of Eli prior to their father's rebuke makes an important point for our story. It tells us that, the, that Eli's rebuke came to his sons way too late. Eli finally decided to rebuke his sons, but unbeknownst to him, in God's timeline, Eli's rebuke came after God had already decided to judge them. And now, their rejection was the unfolding of their path of destruction. One of the ways, dear friends, that we love one another well is to rebuke against sin and to confront sin in our lives when we see it surfacing up. Don't wait for the sin to grow and to fester before we bring it up. Don't wait until it's too late. Friends, this also means that when others bring up a rebuke against any form of ungodliness in our own lives, we should be open to receive it and pay careful attention to it. If we choose to reject a rebuke against our sin, our rejection of it could be a further step towards our destruction. Friends, in the case of Hophni and Phinehas, the rebuke from their father came too late and too lightly. There was no removal from the office of the priesthood. There was no attempts to correct the corrupted worship. Actually, in the third scene, we discover that Eli himself was guilty before God. So let's look at the third, third heading that we see in the story. The head priest dishonors God. Up until now, the impression we get from the story is that the primary 
uh, guilty ones here are Eli's sons. They're the ones who are doing all this corrupt worship. But we find out actually that Eli himself is guilty. He's guilty of dishonoring God. How so? In verse 27, we read that a man of God appears on the scene. He goes to Eli to deliver a message from God. Up to now, Hophni and Phinehas' sin have been exposed with great clarity. But in this section, we realize Eli is also guilty. How is Eli guilty in this mess? God charges Eli with honoring his sons more than honoring God. Look at verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? This is a primary charge that God has against Eli. God rebukes Eli because Eli honored his sons more than Eli honored God. And you say, how did that happen? Because Eli allowed their corrupt worship and their disregard of God's sacrifices to go on and on and did not put a stop to them and did not trigger the consequences that should have been triggered. Eli became guilty because his son's corruption in the corrupt worship brought income to Eli's entire family so that their entire household was fattening themselves by eating the choicest parts of the sacrifices, the meats which were reserved for God. Eli should have put a stop to the sons, serve, to his sons serving as priests. Eli should have put a stop to the corruptive ways. But that meant no fatty income for Eli's sons, for their families, for their wives, for the entire clan of Eli. Eli failed to confront his sons in corrupt worship. And in doing so, Eli failed to honor God. He honored his sons more than he honored God. Friends, when we help each other to deal with our sins, when we confront our sin in each of our lives or help others confront their sin, we should be open to realize that calling each other to turn away from sin may have material implications. Even material benefits may have to be given up. In the case of Eli's household, all that juicy, fatty meat was gone. Eli, though, was not willing to take that route. Eli preferred to keep those benefits coming. And we know that Eli, when he dies in chapter 4, he's described as a fat man himself. He was fattening himself with the fats that were collected from the corrupt worship. In doing so, Eli proves what he cared most about. He cared more about the welfare, materially speaking, of his sons. He cared more for the welfare, materially speaking, of his family than he cared to, to confront his sons and call them to the right way of conducting the worship of God. Ralph Davis, one of the commentators, said, There's truth here even for the individual believer. The prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in grave sin 
by thinking it very important to be nice to people. Now, how easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. Friends, is it possible that sometimes in our own care for each other and accountability of each, with each other, we're just a bit too nice to call each other out in time? Yes, there are some people who make their whole life pursuit to be about rebuking others, and they are like CIA agents, spying agents, and trying to and, and, and rejoice when they find somebody with a sin. That's not what we're talking about here. That is not what we're talking about here. But in, in a desire to react against that, is it possible that we have swung, swung, swung the pendulum to the other extreme where it just, we just don't confront when confrontation is needed? When we equate niceness with loving well, when actually, by God's standards, loving well is to confront sin in our lives in a loving way, but in a firm way, recognizing that there are consequences as well. Parents, there's much we can learn about parenting from Eli of what not to do. When our children sin, don't ignore their sin. Don't minimize the consequences of their sin. Don't seek their material well-being over their spiritual well-being. Ask yourself, are there any ways in which you honor your children above God? Ask yourself, is there someone else in your life uh, that you honor more than God because perhaps you're afraid of speaking the truth, God's truth, in love? Finally, we see the final point in this, uh, the final heading, uh, the fourth heading in this story, God's solution. God's solution. God's solution is judgment and replacement. Notice what God says to Eli in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. In despising and dishonoring God, Eli forfeits to be honored by the Lord. And what does that look like? It's quite the opposite of what he tried to do for his family. He tried to protect his family. He tried to, to do well for his family. He tried to make sure that they have the best foods on the table. But look at what God says. God decrees to put an end to Eli's house to serve as priests. In verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Uh, the Hebrew language for cutting off your strength is literally cutting off your arm. This is exactly what God will do to the Philistine god, Dagog, Dagon, in chapter 5. But now God is declaring that he's cutting off the, the arms of Eli's household so they will not be able, and the successors will not be able to serve God as priests. More so, in verses 32 to 34, God decrees that no old people will be left in Eli's household that meant that God would bring early deaths upon Eli's descendants. They will not get to enjoy a long life. 
God decrees that many will be killed with a sword, and those who will escape will escape only so that they can cry out their griefs. And to assure Eli that God is bringing about this judgment, God gives Eli a sign. And the sign is that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will both be killed on the same day. Did this really happen? And the answer is yes. And it happened in multiple layers. The first layer of fulfillment against Eli's household was when his sons, in chapter 4, are both killed in the same day in battle. And Eli himself was killed on the same day. But that does not stop the fulfillment. There's more fulfillment to come. Later in the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul, who pursued David, decided to kill the priests who helped David, Saul killed about 85 of the priests. And they were priests from the family of Eli. We know that because one of the priests who escaped is a man by the name of Abiathar. And Abiathar, when David became king, was put in charge of the Ark of the Lord. He was like the, the chief priest during David's reign. But when Solomon became king, Solomon expelled Abiathar from the priesthood, and he replaced him with a more godly priest. And listen to the words in 1 Kings chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Solomon said, And to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because you shared in all my father's afflictions. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he has spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. That was the last time we see a priest from the line of Eli serving as a priest. In other words, God's judgment against Eli's household had fulfillment beyond his lifetime. It was not just in what Eli was to experience immediately, his death and then the death of his sons. It was, a, it was the, the breaking, the taking away of the strength and the honor to be priest for the entire generations beyond him. And I ask you, was it, was it worth it for Eli to honor his sons more than to honor God? When you get to see the big picture, was it worth it? Was it worth it to seek the welfare of his family at the expense of the obedience to God? Was it worth it to try to fatten themselves at the expense of God's sacrifices? Oh, friends, the path that Eli took did not turn well. But let that be also a warning for us. When we honor people more than we honor God, it will never turn out well in the long run. It may turn out well in the short run. It may even turn out well, we might say, in, in our lifetime. It will not turn up well in the long run. The story of Eli's household has been such a dark story, ending on such a sad note. That's what sin does to anyone. But while this is happening in Eli's household, God was not yet done with his people. God offers a, a word of hope. 
And while God decides to judge Eli's household and remove the priesthood from his family, God here promises a new priest. And this is what the story ends on. A glimmer of hope. In verse 35, God says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Friends, praise be to God that he is promising not to leave his people without a faithful priest. Even if God is destroying one priestly family clan, God is promising to raise up another priest. And notice what will characterize faithful priesthood. He shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. This is what characterizes a faithful priestly work, to do God's work in God's way, in a way that matches entirely with God's heart and with God's mind. Not even with what people expect. Now, who was that priest? In the very immediate context, uh, God provides uh, a, a hope of glimmer through the very young boy, Samuel. Throughout this text, in each of the three scenes that we have seen, there's been a stark contrast between Eli's sons and the boy Samuel. The first scene that exposed the, the sins of Eli's sons are setting contrast with Samuel ministering before the Lord. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Look again at verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then once this story ends, look at the next verse in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Do you hear the, the refrain, the, the constant echo that's being sprinkled through the story of the corruption of the bad priests? It's this picture, small, short glimpses of Samuel. The Lord is raising up someone in the midst of such a corrupt priesthood. There's such a contrast between the extreme devotion of Hannah and giving her son to the Lord and Eli allowing his sons to live in such corruption. There's such a contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this book. No wonder that in this chapter we see the Lord blessing Hannah's family with more children, whereas in the same chapter the Lord decrees the destruction of Eli's household. But, but there's a problem here. Samuel is not, does not belong to a priestly line. Samuel is actually not the priest. He's going to be the prophet. He's going to be the last judge. Yes, he will do some priestly activities, such as leading the people of God in bringing sacrifices to the Lord. But Samuel's ministry was key to prepare the way for another priest. Did you notice the way Samuel was described in verse 26? Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Do you remember hearing that phrase anywhere else in the Bible? It was Luke the gospel writer, when he finished describing the birth narratives of Jesus. Chapter 2 of Luke ends on this final verse. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
This was Luke's way of saying, Jesus is the one that Samuel pointed to. God was raising up a new priest. And unlike Samuel, whose kids did not follow the way of the Lord, Jesus would be the ultimate great high priest. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7 through 9, actually 7 through 10, make the case that Jesus is the ultimate high priest who comes from a better line than the line of Aaron. There are so many verses from Hebrews 7 through 10. I encourage you to read those chapters home. But let me just point out to one verse. Um, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate better priest that, that the promise of God has been fulfilled in, in Samuel. Samuel was a step towards it. Samuel was the one who eventually brought in the, the first anointed king and the second anointed king. But Samuel was not a priest. He pointed, though, God's people in the right direction to honor God. And when Saul, when Saul disobeys God, when Saul goes and offers a worship to God on his own, instead of waiting for Samuel to bring the offering, Saul says, honor me before my people. He had just disobeyed God, but Saul wants Samuel to honor King Saul. Oh, friends, in this chapter, we see what happens when the priests dishonor God. What happens when the priests despise God? And we see God's judgment, and we see God's commitment to replace the priesthood and bring on a new priesthood. Friends, this also reminds us that God is a God who is beginning his judgment from his very house. As we have read earlier in the service from the book of 1 Peter, the judgment of God begins with the house of God. This should give us caution. This should give us reasons to examine our own hearts. Are we perhaps falling in the sins of the sons of Eli to despise God and his word and to dishonor him by honoring other people above God. In the midst of this judgment, what a gracious God we have to provide hope of a better priest. And that priest is Jesus Christ. May we find in him our ultimate priest. Let's pray.